Some people actually get people to motivate them. Motivational speakers, motivational books. But there's no doubt we need motivation. I need motivation to look after my body. I need to be motivated. I don't always want to go out and walk my 10,000 steps. Don't want to. But now and again, I get motivated and I'm going for it. Some of us need motivation to finish off projects we started years ago with remains of them uh, giving us guilt complexes. Maybe it's building a shed in the garden, sorting out your clothes cupboard or finishing that essay you're supposed to be doing. Or maybe putting thousands of digital photos now in order. You need motivation to do these things. We need motivation in our work. Some of us need motivation just to get up in the morning. People have all sorts of things that motivate them. Now, I began to think about this motivation, and I, I looked up what some famous authors had said. Some are quite sceptical about motivation and what motivates the human, uh, the human. Arthur Schopenhauer, who was probably the most pessimistic philosopher in the history of philosophy. He was so pessimistic, he was happy in his pessimism. And in his book, Shadows in Pessimism, The Vanity of Existence, he regarded, he said this, as regards motivation, hunger and the sexual instinct, aided a little perhaps by the influence of boredom, but by nothing else. That's what motivates the human being. Locke, who really influenced America in philosophical thinking, said this, he said, well, what really motivates the thinking man is the difference between good and evil, reward and punishment. Lyndon B. Johnson appeared on the Larry King show, 25th of October in 1992. And he tends to be, at least in this quotation, as sceptical as Schopenhauer. Sex and envy, the two great drivers in life. Since we're on presidents, let me note Nixon and what he said. People react to fear, not love. They don't teach that in Sunday school, but it's true. No, we don't teach that in Sunday school. And then let me come back on a more military note with West Point's motto, less pessimistic, less sceptical, duty honour country. There are different things that motivate us. And the reality is, all sorts of things motivate us. Hunger motivates us. Sexuality and love motivates us. Envy, rewards, punishment. I was motivated by my love for my wife. Motivated so much I came over here to live. That's motivation. So there's all sorts of motivation. But the question I want to ask this morning is simple. What were the main things that motivated Paul? Because in looking at 2 Corinthians, again, we're looking autobiographically to try to understand what made Paul tick. 
We're trying to get to know him. What are the main things? He was probably motivated by lots of things. But here he notes two key things and another thing which illustrates the second. And I'll explain it as we go on. The first thing is that two things motivate Paul. He talks about them. We'll talk of them in a minute. Then he goes to the message itself, which is the death of Christ, and he says, that motivates me as well. So there's two things that motivate him, plus understanding what Christ has done on the cross. Let's start with those two first things. Verse 11 links with what Paul has said previously. And if you remember, Paul had spoke, spoken about standing in the judgment. So he begins the next verse with these words. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. In the light of the judgment, he is motivated. He is motivated to do his duty in the light of the day of judgment. He knows that he and others will stand in that day of judgment and will have to be answerable for their lives, for what they did. And that motivates him because he's answerable for his life. It's not just his own life but he is answerable to live a good life. Scott Hefferman, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell until a few years ago, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, says this about the judgment. This is the bottom line motivation of Paul's mind. The apostle seeks to persuade others to join him in fearing the Lord so that they too will escape his wrath. There is duty there. That is there. He knows he is answerable. And you know what? We know that in all sorts of things. As a kid, my mother would always say, wait till your father gets home. Right? And, and, and that would motivate me to try and live a less naughty life. I, I don't know what anyone tells me anymore, but that's besides the point. But it's clear that duty is really, really important. He takes duty to, as something important in his life. And that duty is a zealous duty. Verse 13. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. That is, he's enthusiastic. He's enthusiastic about the faith. The other day we were looking at Jesus in the temple. And he was enthusiastic about what he was doing. And then that, those words, the disciples remember those words, zeal for thy house has consumed me from Psalm 96. And that verse is written in Latin, believe it or not, over one of the entrances in Gordon Conwell. Uh, zeal for thy house has eaten me up. Zeal is part of life. It's desire. It's a bit of fire in the soul. I do not want to go through life without zeal for something. 
Life is made up by partly by zeal. And that we should be zealous in our duty to God because we do have a duty to God. Every Brit was brought up with Admiral Nelson's famous quote at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. England expects every man to do his duty. And of course, we beat the French, hurrah, hurrah, in that battle. As Christians, sometimes we might not want to do something. It might be awkward for us to do something. But you know, it's our duty to do it. And that must motivate us. Must motivate us. And duty motivates Paul. He does it because it's right to do. We will not always want to do the things we're called to do. I might not always want to go to work. I might not always want to clean the garden out. I might not want to do it. But I am called to do my duty. He is motivated by that. But he's motivated by something else as well. And this is a great verse. I've loved this verse all my life. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He is motivated by duty, but he's also motivated by love. Christ has loved him and Christ's love affects him because he's been loved so much by Christ he okay is going to do his duty he is motivated by a love for Christ he wants to please Christ so Paul is motivated by two things the fact of judgment for all goes for us as well and secondly by the love of Christ Christ has demonstrated his love to us, so we must demonstrate our love to others. And then we come to answer the question, how did Christ love us? And this is the main point. There are two introductory points, if you like. How does Christ love us? He loves us through his death. Through his death. Paul is compelled by Christ's loving sacrifice of himself. Second part of verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. The very fact of Christ dying for all, that fact motivates him. He has got a message. He has got something to say. You know, when you get good news, it's fun. I love having good news. And I can't wait to tell people the good news. Oh, did you hear about this? Oh, listen to this. You never guess who I saw. You you know, we got good news and you can't stop yourself. At least I can't, because I'm a big mouth. And I love, I love good news. And Paul here, you can see, has good news. And here's the good news of the essence. Christ died for all. I say it again. 
Christ died for all. All mankind, all nations, all cultures, all ages, all classes, everyone with a weird accent, he died for them as well. Christ died for all. Hallelujah! For all. All of you here. Christ died. Christ died for those of you from Liberia. He died for you. He died for those of you in Cambodia. He died for those who are from Myanmar. He died for people in Wales. He died for Americans as well. He died for people in Massachusetts. He died for people in Jamaica. I nearly got you all now, I think, this morning. Maybe I haven't. If not, please forgive me. May the love of Christ... And Haiti! <laughs> I got Haiti in. Christ died, and he is motivated by this. He has got good news to say. Died for all sorts of people. And he's motivated. He's got good news. Good news. And the metaphor and the word he uses to take this further is a word reconciliation. He uses it twice in verse 18, twice in verse 19, and once in verse 20. And really this is a key aspect of what salvation is about. It was such a joy this morning in adult ed education. Now, actually, in the prayer meeting, when we, it was about seven of us there early. And so I said, how about we give our testimonies? And believe it or not, we were all, all male, seven guys. Seven guys sitting in that prayer meeting. And we just shared our testimonies. And it was fantastic how God had worked in people's lives. God had broken in all sorts of people. And I want to thank those guys for sharing from their heart about what God had done. And what he had done, generally, was to reconcile them to God. To bring them back to God. Brought them together. And this is the death of Christ, the meaning of the death of Christ as an event. Because the death of Christ brings back the relationship between God and man. It takes it for granted that there's a distance between God and man. Man is infected with self-love, with pride and envy, misdirected desire. And man seeks an ongoing independence from God. Man doesn't want a relationship very often with God. Just want to do your own thing. Leave me alone. As we heard again this morning, I think it was you who said it, you know, uh, that uh, many have come over from Liberia, and in Liberia they would go to church, but now they say they got their rights, they can do what they like. And, you know, right? Um, you know, people want to just do what they like. It's something in each and every one of us. People turn away from God. Or people try to explain God psychologically. 
Freud speaks of the father figure, marks of the psychological need of having a God. But they don't want God. They try and explain him away. They rebel against God. When I was back in Wales, it, it, it was so much fun. I haven't spoken much about it here, but I was back in Wales and believe it or not, I took part in another documentary on revival. This was written by a friend of mine who was actually my youth group at one time and was at once my associate pastor and took over my church in Wales afterwards. It was so much fun. And we were in the place where the revival broke out again. Twenty years later, there I am, standing in the same place as I made the original documentary, doing one with him, and it was fun. And one of the guys who came in was someone who knew a key figure in that revival. His uncle was a man called Sam Jenkins. And Sam Jenkins had a song that he sang in the revival. I can't remember the English words for it. Please forget. For, that's for saving a sinner like me. All right, that's how it ended. For, it's from gospel, Sankey's sort of type. For saving a sinner like me. When that was translated into Welsh, it was translated for saving a rebel like me. I like it. I'm achib, heen a rebel, velvi. And then it would go on singing it. It's wonderful. And it says something about our very souls. We're in rebellion. We want independence from God. We want that from God. So reconciliation is bringing the rebel back into the fold. Being reconciled to God. Justice will not be ignored. Sins will be punished. Yet there is forgiveness. And by the way, it's God's plan. God the Father's plan to reconcile. Sometimes we get a wrong idea here. Take verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God's idea. God, verse 19, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Verse 20, God making his appeal through us. Sometimes, preachers give the impression Christ dies on the cross and just pleads with God, oh, please be merciful, please be merciful to, to these people because I'm dying on the cross. It's God the Father's idea for reconciliation. And he works with the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, working together and giving new birth by the God, the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, through Jesus. Father and Son working together in preparing salvation for all of us. All of us. There's an extreme verse that I would never have written. But I'm not Paul and I'm not inspired. And that's verse 21. Verse 21 is one of the most extreme verses in the New Testament. Listen to it. Speaking of Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Do you hear that? To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Christ became sin for us. Not only did he carry our sins, in some way, he was infected with our sin. He never sinned. But he was made sin for us. And he, he puts it in another way in verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Christ does the dirty work and takes it upon himself so that we might know his righteousness. All of us can know that. It's not automatic. You've got to respond. Not automatic. And this motivates Paul. He is motivated by Jesus as a sacrifice who has taken away our sins. Jesus has taken the blame for us. He's paid the fine. He gives his life for us. And Paul is motivated. He's got a great message. Great message. He passes on to us a new righteousness. He clothes us with his righteousness, woven by a perfect life of love and care, decorated with the beauty of his personality and action, unpolluted and unpolluted by moral failure or compromise and no tears of hypocrisy and he gives us those clothes and we can wear the garment of salvation it's the garment of salvation it's not mine i didn't do it myself i didn't weave it my life isn't good enough to weave such a garment but christ's life is good enough he becomes sin so that I can be clothed with his righteousness. That's the bargain for all. That's the bargain. It's a great bargain. A long time ago, in a faraway land, I was coming home from, I think it was the prayer meeting in the gospel hall. I think it was. And in those days, I, I couldn't drive. So I must have been in my early 20s. And I had a push bike, you know, bike, bicycle. So I was going home, it was a movie, I wanted to see a movie, and I felt God telling me, go to Darwin Park. What? <laughs> this is nuts, this is nuts. Go to the park. I, I, so I began to talk to myself, I said, oh, I've got the park, it's stupid, so I went home. And uh, after going home, I couldn't watch the movie. I had to get back on my bike and go to Davin Park. I felt so guilty. So I thought, why am I in Davin Park? So I, I'm cycling through. It's a small village. I'm cycling through this small village. And suddenly, there's, no, there's nobody there hardly. Not late tonight. I hear someone shout out. Hey, Bible thumper! <laughs> and there's a group, there was a gang of hoodlum types. They knew that I was a Christian. And they were sitting in the park, wasting their time. Hi, Bible thumper! So I, I got off the bike and smashed him in the face. No, I didn't, I didn't. 
to say that. Oh, dear. So I got off the bike, and I said, yeah, I am a Bible thumper, yeah. I I let me tell you about it. So we began to talk. And then, in our talking, he said, do you really take this seriously? I said, yeah. Okay, do you believe what Jesus says? I said, yeah. Well, Jesus says if, I don't know where he got this verse from. Jesus says, if I ask you for a jacket, you'll give it to me. This was hard. This was my favorite jacket. This was a US Army combat jacket. I loved this jacket more than any jacket I have ever loved. So here I was with my US, I, I did have black, a black beard long, long time ago. So I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And the boys all around him, I said, oh, don't be so, don't leave him alone, don't listen to him. So I said, and, and then he said, I'll tell you what I'll do, he said. No, no, I, I said, okay, you want the jacket? Here we are, there's the jacket. That hurt, can I just say that really hurt? So he was thrilled, he got his jacket. All his friends turned against him. All his friends, oh, what it was? Why would you do that? And he, he was beginning to feel guilty. So he went to his, I think it was his van, and he got out the most dirty, rubbishy leather jacket you have ever seen. You wouldn't put a dog into this leather jacket. You really wouldn't, okay? And he said, well, I will swap it for that. So he walks away with my perfect US Army combat jacket and I'm putting on this filthy rag which is even dirty put on which I very quickly got rid of. I want to say this and you know what I'm going to say. Christ took off his jacket and gave it to us. What did we give him? our dirty jackets. But he has given that to us. That's the best news for any of us. When people aren't sure that they're a Christian, that's what I go back to. I'm a Christian because of Christ's jacket. That jacket of righteousness, not bought by me, but by Christ. And he offers that to each and every one of you. It's not automatic. I just want to say that. Just in case someone walk up and say, oh, well, Christ died for all. That's great. I'm okay then. No, no, no. Whoa. We have got to come and take it. Because it says clearly here in verse 20, be reconciled to God. We have got to take that step. And I just want to challenge you, if you haven't, why not? Why not? Challenge you at home. If you haven't taken that step, if you're wearing your own jacket, which is stained and torn, you don't need to. You can wear his blood-stained jacket. It will save you in that day of judgment. That is why Paul is motivated. That's why. That's what's behind it. Because he knows, he knows that salvation is for all who come.
So may God encourage you at home and each and every one of us here to know that that is for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. And thank you for the jacket of your Son that covers us in our need. In Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, I'll be looking at a verse I left out. Because some people might come to me and say, you left out the best verse. And one of the best verses there is, we are all new creatures in Christ. And I specifically didn't preach on it. I'll be preaching on it next week. For in Christ, everything has become new. A new creature in Christ. That will be the theme next week. I just want to say that as well. Let me hand over now to the worship team. Thank you for working so many people away. Thank you for the effort uh, you put in. May God bless you if you can give the benedict.